As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not-so-stupid, that help make sense of it all. Today's episode of Matters of Life and Death continues our conversation on coronavirus. If you think back to the start of the pandemic in March, you'll probably recall that there was lots of slightly panicked discussion about how the NHS might not have enough intensive care beds or ventilators to go around if Covid numbers kept surging. Doctors would be placed in the horrible position of having to decide which patients would receive potentially life-saving care and which would not. Thankfully, the UK managed to control the spread enough that this nightmare scenario did not come to pass. But how should we as Christians think about the idea of rationing healthcare? What is the most ethical way to distribute limited medical resources during a public health emergency? Can first come first served ever be a godly response to this dilemma? All that and more in the next half an hour. Hi John, Uh, thanks for joining us again. Um, Today we wanted to go back into our series on coronavirus and talk a little bit about something we haven't touched on yet, which is some of the ethical concerns and questions that have arisen because of this pandemic. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will remember a few weeks ago, there was a lot of discussion about the fear that the NHS would be overwhelmed and that we wouldn't have enough intensive care beds, ventilators or other medical treatments for the number of patients arriving. Thankfully, we now know that hasn't happened and um, most hospitals have been have been managed to to cope. But there was discussion at the time about if if we were overwhelmed and there was, you know, for instance, three COVID patients for every one intensive care bed. There's a lot of discussion about how one goes about trying to uh, ration out those that care, who gets the bed and which two people are unlucky enough not to get the bed. Um, you, you've been doing some thinking and some uh, writing about this from a Christian perspective. What, what's the, a good place to begin in terms of thinking about uh, rationing out care in a crisis like this? Yes. Well, of course, it's, it's really important to understand that rationing is, is a fundamental part of all healthcare, although in the NHS it often isn't discussed very openly. Um, So, for instance, 
it's always the case that when it, when the possibility of a patient being admitted to an intensive care unit is being discussed amongst professionals, that there will be some discussion as to whether it's appropriate uh, for this individual patient. Um, and it's not unusual, just in, in normal NHS practice, for following a discussion between specialists and intensivists and so on, a decision will be made that for this particular patient, intensive care is not appropriate. And, and that is implicitly a, a rationing decision. But I think it's important to understand that the essence of how those decisions are made, certainly in the UK, is that they they must be made around the best interests of the individual patient. I mean, our duty of care, which we have as health professionals and which is undergirded by a whole panoply of medical law, is that is that we have a legally binding duty to do the best, to act in the best interests of each individual patient. Uh, and, and so a decision not to admit a, a patient to intensive care is based primarily on the fact of what is best for them, that actually uh, there are a lot of patients with severe illness who, who just don't benefit from intensive care. And it has been uh, practiced for a number of years to try to assess the level of, level of frailty uh, of individual patients and, and use that uh, and the, the comorbidity, the uh, existence of other diseases, and use that to guide decisions as to whether they're likely to benefit from intensive care. And behind all this is the understanding that for a patient to die in an intensive care unit um, is actually a terrible way to die. It's, it's not at all in that patient's best interests. And therefore, if there's a high chance that a patient's going to die despite maximal intensive support, then we really need to think, is this the right thing to do to, to admit them to the intensive care unit? Um, so so you see, you're seem to be saying that even if there was, in theory, an intensive care bed available, you wouldn't necessarily always fill it with a with a with a, a patient necessarily if even if they had a very severe illness or even coronavirus so it's not even a question of trying to ascertain trying to allocate limited resources but even if, if sometimes if there are spare resources the right decision from a medical perspective and an ethical perspective is not to give that person some forms of forms of treatment that's exactly right and i think this is often is a perception which um the general public don't understand they they there seems to be this panacea, this idea that intensive care is a wonderful kind of treatment which uh is ideal for every patient and that just isn't the reality you know have i've worked in intensive care particularly for newborn babies for 25 years and we know that uh trying to avoid being admitted to the intensive care unit it, is is very important and, and that it isn't appropriate for every patient um, so and, and to be honest this is also a difference between for instance um, the NHS and uh, some other privatized health systems particularly in the USA where um, there's a much greater incentive uh, for in a privatized system for patients to receive intensive care um, to be honest, even if it's not necessarily in their best interests. Partly it may be that the patient is demanding intensive care and ultimately in a private system, the person who pays calls the shots. And partly it is that there are perverse incentives on doctors, 
because and on hospitals because they receive greater profits uh, by providing intensive care rather than providing just normal levels of care. Um, but I'm glad to say that in the NHS, one of the great advantages of working as a healthcare professional in the NHS is you don't have those kind of perverse incentives. We, we genuinely uh, can try to do what we think is in the best interests of each individual patient. So I guess what you're talking about here is this idea of triage, which is, um, I guess, a slightly unusual medical world that maybe some of us are becoming more and more familiar with. Um, in some ways, we, we come across it a little bit. I have when you go to A&E, maybe, and you see a triage nurse who assesses your injury and the severity of it. And that kind of determines how quickly you get to see an A&E doctor. And we will understand that if you come in with a with a broken finger, you're going to take longer to see an A&E doctor than someone who comes in with a heart attack, even if they might have come in hours after you. Um, how does triage work outside of that context? Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how a, a quite a technical word has now become very widely known and discussed. Uh, it comes from the French trier, meaning to separate, or divide, or to select. And uh, it originally was used in a medical context in, in military medicine. Um, and um, it was doctors working in, in battlefield situations who realised that they had to uh, select which of the wounded soldiers they were going to concentrate their medical uh, skills on and um, put crudely um, uh, triage in military medicine divides all the wounded into three categories there's one category who are so severely wounded that they're likely to die whatever you do and you don't spend time uh, treating those there's another category whose wounds are so trivial that they're likely to survive whatever you do and you don't spend time treating those and you focus entirely on the third category and that is a, a category with wounds that are severely wounded but who have a chance of survival if they receive uh, medical care and um, so that's the origins of triage within medicine but it's now used uh, much more uh, widely as a concept and uh, I think from a Christian point of view I, I think we can see that triage is a, a Christian approach or is consistent with a Christian approach um, initial reactions might be how horrible and how cool cold and callous but I, I think from a Christian approach it can be seen as uh, Christian professionals trying to be good stewards of the resources that we have that God has given us resources and we need to use them with wisdom and with discernment and, and so in principle I would support uh, triage in health emergencies provided that we operate according to Christian and ethical principles. It's interesting. I didn't know it came from a battlefield context, but maybe that slightly un explains why so many of us feel slightly uneasy at the concept of triaging patients, because, you know, we, we don't feel like we live in a battlefield and we feel like there should be medic medical treatment for everyone, regardless. And and it's almost ha we're having to be thrown into this crisis and emergency um, of coronavirus to expose the fact that actually all healthcare systems rely on a degree of triage, even in good times before coronavirus, the NHS was not giving treatment to absolutely everybody. Um, and that's only been exacerbated now. 
Yes, I think that's right. I mean, and, and therefore, it's important not to overstate the difference from the COVID nineteen era, from everything that came before. Although it it has created a very harsh spotlight on these questions, and um, I think the difference is that in normal functioning, uh, outside times of health emergency, it's possible for all decisions to about clinical care uh, in a rich country such as the UK uh, for all healthcare decisions to be based on the best interests of the individual patient um, and therefore decisions about whether or not uh, intensive care should be given, what other treatment options, everything can be made within the overall context of doing the best for this individual patient. Once we're in times of health emergency uh, then uh, and, and the possibility comes that health resources are going to be overwhelmed, then the real difficulty comes is how we balance our duty to do the best for each individual patient with our uh, commitment to the community as a whole. And uh, it's unusual for us in, in the West to be confronted with this. Of course, it's important to recognise that in many other health systems... I've spent a short time in my career working in uh, Africa in systems where there's very, very limited medical resources and, and all uh, doctors there, including all medical missionaries and so on, recognise that, that they need to practise this kind of triage every day of their working lives. And you say, we only have so many vials of, of uh, penicillin available and so I keep that penicillin back for the patient who is most likely to benefit from it. I don't just necessarily give it to the first person person who might benefit. Um, hmm. So that kind of triage is, has always been practiced in low resource settings. What's unusual is, is that we're being forced to, to confront this in rich countries. Um, and so how do we do this triage, particularly when we're thinking about uh, intensive care resources and I think the principle that we try to use objective measurements of uh, and, and scales which help us to say which patient will benefit uh, is the most important and uh, are most helpful. And there are a number of scales and assessment systems which have been suggested and for which there is some objective clinical evidence that they're valuable. There's something called the clinical frailty scale which uh, has been used before the covid 19 pandemic, uh, particularly in older people, as a way of assessing the degree of frailty before acute illness. And there is evidence that patients with uh, high levels of clinical frailty before being admitted to hospital have much worse outcomes, uh, much more likely to die or to be um, and not to benefit from intensive care. So using those kind of scales as a way of um, deciding where limited intensive care resources should go, I, I, I think is entirely appropriate. Um, I think uh, the second approach, which may sound slightly uh, strange, but which actually I think is entirely appropriate, and that is basically the principle of first come, first served. In other words, uh, we, we literally treat each patient who could benefit from intensive care, and we say, well, this patient could benefit they'll be admitted, this patient could benefit, they'll be admitted, this patient could benefit, they'll be admitted, 
now we're full here's another patient who can benefit well now we'll need to find some other uh, opportunity uh, some other resource for them and that's of course is why the um, the NHS built these large Nightingale hospitals as a kind of overflow resource so that once first come first serve had been operating and then there were no more intensive care beds within the local resource and then uh, additional resources could be brought into play. It's interesting that you say that there's a kind of ethical basis for that because it seems to me quite a kind of coldly random and people you know how people feel about postcode lotteries and things like that why do you think first come first served does have a kind of ethical moral grounding rather than just being you know something that's simple to execute i think it reflects i mean to to step back a bit it just reflects our human limitation um you know here i am as a as a practicing doctor i have an intensive care unit uh, and, and i know that there's space in it it's empty the nurses the staff the equipment are all there and now here is a patient who could benefit from that space and the question is should I say to them no I don't think I can admit you because there's just possible that the next one coming along you know later on today or tomorrow might be even more needy might be an even higher priority and therefore I have to hold off and make those kind of do I treat the patient in front of me or do I say well there's another potential patient who's more needy and and you can see how it to try and do that as a clinician puts you in an impossible position um, and the way that the legal system and the ethical system has developed is that my responsibility is first and foremost to this patient in front of me I I can't sort of agonize too much about all the patients out there who might be coming because here is an objective patient who has a real need that real need is obvious to me and I have the treatment sitting there that would help this patient and so my first responsibility uh, is is effectively on a first come first serve basis I think it reflects our humanity our human limitations we're not computing machines we're not sitting there coldly calculating odds. We're treating a human being in front of us. And we have a duty of care to this person. So um, when I was a, a neonatologist, I, I worked in a large intensive care uh, unit, one of the biggest intensive care units in the country. And we knew that there was a real under-provision of intensive care um, across the country for newborns. Um, but we felt the right thing to do was to operate a first-come-first-served um, basis so that we would take babies who were suitable for intensive care whenever they were offered to us including babies born in our own hospital but therefore babies born in hospitals around the country uh, if if there was a need we would say yes we'll take them until the point at which we're full and then we say well I'm terribly sorry we can't take the next patient but what we will do is we will end up ringing around the country trying to find another neonatal intensive care unit who could take that patient and sometimes it was it we spent a long time um trying to find another patient but i'm glad to say that in every case it was possible by hook or by crook to find another intensive care somewhere else in the country that could take this sick baby um did that so, create a kind of perverse thing where if you lived in the southeast of england near that hospital 
you got slightly better odds of surviving because your ambulance would get you to to your hospital in central London faster than if you lived else further away? I'm afraid that is absolutely the case. And there is quite clear objective evidence showing that if you manage to get a place in one of the highest level of intensive care units, your chances of survival were considerably higher than if you couldn't. And uh, again, people say postcode lottery and uh, isn't that terrible, but it, it reflects the realities. I mean, it's just a fantasy to think that the quality of care um, are provided in hundreds of hospitals across the country in all kinds of different sittings, is, settings is going to be exactly the same, that your chances of survival um, as a critically ill uh, person is going to be exactly the same in any hospital, NHS hospital you go in across the country. I mean, that that's a fantasy land. And, and obviously what we want to try and do is try and ensure that the sickest patients get into the best equipped um, hospitals, but it doesn't always happen. You've talked about a couple of strategies that you think are ethical in a in a, an emergency situation like coronavirus, whether that's using a kind of objective scale like the clinical frailty scale or a first come first served. What are some other strategies that you think might not be ethical to use for triage? Yeah, so I, I think there are several approaches which have been suggested and which I just don't think are are at all appropriate, particularly from a Christian perspective. So one approach, which I think is quite wrong, is coming up with blanket rules based on things such as age. So, for instance, it was said that uh, because the system was so overwhelmed in Italy that um, that there was a blanket rule being taken in some hospitals based, as based on age as to whether uh, they could be admitted to intensive care. Um, there's a lot of concern also amongst people with existing disabilities, um, such as cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or uh, learning difficulties, uh, as to whether a blanket rule would be made that patients with pre-existing disabilities would not receive intensive support. And I think we can all see why that kind of crude blanket rule is just inappropriate and particularly from a Christian point of view, it, it fails to reflect the fact that we're all unique individuals. And so categorising us in a, in a completely inhumane way based on age or disability or gender, uh, I, I think is quite inappropriate. We should try to individualise care and individualise our decision making. And what about the idea of assessing not just a patient's medical needs, but also their broader kind of social position? So some people have said that, um, you know, uh, an NHS staff member who gets coronavirus should be given greater priority compared to, you know, some someone in another less key workery position. Do you think that's fair? Well, it's interesting that this approach has often been suggested by ethicists and philosophers. Um usually based on some kind of utilitarian or what's uh, philosophically known as a consequentialist philosophy, uh, an attempt to um, maximise um, outcomes. And, and so the argument goes, if you've got two patients and one of them is, is a, an intensive care doctor who happens to be infected and another is a homeless person on the street, 
if you use your resources to save the intensive care doctor, then in the long term, this is going to mean they're going to be much more benefit to society. They're going to care for other people. And by and large, society does much better. Whereas if you use resources to save the life of a homeless person, then frankly, it's a waste of resources. They're of no social benefit. And those arguments have been put forward very forcefully by a number of ethicists. And I think some of us were quite alarmed because in and there was some discussion in, um, in, in some very uh, influential organisations within the medical profession that some kind of rule like that might be suggested if, if health uh, resources were completely overwhelmed. And I and some other Christians responded really quite negatively to that and argued that that was not appropriate. Um, to be, uh, and, and the basic argument is that this is a form of discrimination. This is uh, th that the trust in a service like the National Health Service depends on the belief that amongst the community that these expensive resources, which we're all paying for through our taxes, are going to be used indiscriminately without... Uh, discrimination um, and that it would be deeply unjust if those precious resources were being targeted uh, to people who were regarded as being socially desirable and that would lead to all kinds of problems within society quite, and uh, quite rightly a, a, a loss of trust in what the NHS is doing. So uh, I, I feel quite strongly as do most other Christian doctors that, that that this is not an appropriate way of using resources even in a in an acute emergency that we should try as much as possible to use our resources according to clinical criteria but not according to other social criteria I mean we saw a little example of this in a tiny way quite early on in the crisis when it was uh, revealed that Prince Charles had um, contracted coronavirus and a lot of people were like, well, how, this is in the days and the testing was very much limited. And everyone was like, well, how was he able to get a test? And, um, you know, the counter argument was, well, wouldn't you want to know that the heir to the throne has it? And there was this there was a kind of raging debate that I saw that says, no, Prince Charles should be treated like anyone else. And, um, you know, at that point, you couldn't get tested unless you were in a hospital and he wasn't didn't have a severe case. And other people said, no, no, obviously, there should be an exception made for people of such status you know, your Prince Charles's, your Boris Johnson's, your Chris Whitty's, who are so important to the nation that they should be able to effectively jump the queue and break the ordinary rules. Yes, yeah, so, and you can see the argument um, in favour of that. But I think it was extremely healthy and very significant that when Boris Johnson was critically unwell, he didn't go off to some special private um, facility, but that he received standard... NHS care in a standard NHS teaching hospital and uh, I, I think that's a that was a hugely important statement um, of of trust in the NHS and belief in it and also of, of this principle of equality uh, there are many many examples in I'm afraid in poor countries where uh, the health systems are incredibly um, limited and lo and behold, when senior politicians and presidents get sick, they fly off and go to the West and receive the very highest standards of medical care. And I'm afraid that just stinks, doesn't it? I mean, the idea that, um, that, that the care that the leaders receive is, is so much better than the, the care that 
everybody else receives is is deeply um, unjust and, and cuts across this deep belief that every human life is precious and special and should be treated equally. And I suppose without wanting to get over-spiritualise it, that's one of the ways in which we're fortunate that our healthcare system, the NHS, does reflect Christian values in that um, not only does it provide healthcare free at the point of use, but it doesn't discriminate. And, you know, people often rhapsodize about how you could have an investment banker in one bed and a homeless person in another bed, and they would receive identical care in a spotless, clean, publicly funded hospital. And um, I guess in some way that does reflect the vision of kind of human dignity and equality that we see uh, in the Christian faith. Yes, absolutely right. Uh, the NHS came out of a deeply Christian uh, understanding of uh, equality within within society and 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 work, uh, speaking as a as a doctor who worked for many years in central London NHS it was and remains to me one of the glories of the NHS is that you would find uh, two beds uh, and literally you would have in one an extremely high status uh, uh, professional uh, person or a politician and in the next bed you would have a, a refugee from some country across the world or, um, or a homeless person and so on and they were receiving identical care and, and that is a huge statement uh, it's almost unique I mean there, there aren't many systems across the world where that, where that is the case and it's something I'm very proud of. just going back to the triage question I, I, th I think the final uh, suggestion which has been made again largely by uh, ethicists uh, and, and by philosophers is that we should use a utilitarian calculus um, which uh, is uh, the technical term is a hedonic calculus which basically means that you sum up all the uh, positive benefits all the negative benefits from an action and then by putting it through this complicated calculus you then decide whether this particular patient should be should be treated and whether that patient should not and again I, I, I think this kind of, of cold cruel mathematical reduction of a unique individual is something which we resist as, as Christians We've, we feel that in the end uh, it's we, we have to recognise the unique humanity of everybody and therefore the decisions that have been made shouldn't be made entirely on cold mathematics but they should recognise uh, the individual patient and be made with humanity, with judgement and with wisdom. And just lastly then, does that seem to suggest that it's almost like a reworking of the classic philosophical trolley problem um, which people will have been familiar with, where you have a, a train careering down the tracks and it's currently going to run over six people. And if you pull a lever, it will go into another set of tracks where it will run over one person. And, you know, ethicists d debate about whether it's right or wrong to pull the lever. And in the same way, deciding between giving an intensive care doctor a ventilator over a homeless person, if we know the intensive care doctor will then go on to save the lives of six other people. It sounds like you're saying Christians should not pull that lever and 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 leave it be. Well, as somebody who's worked in the field of medical ethics for thirty years, I have a total loathing of trolley problems. 
I, I think they have been an utter source of um, confusion and um, hot air. And uh, I think, <laughs> don't get me started, there's lots of things that are wrong with trolley <laughs> problems. Um, but uh, one of the most obviously things that's wrong with the trolley problem is that the way a trolley problem is set up is they always say there is no alternative. You simply have one choice. You can do A or do B. And one of, both choices seem absolutely awful and horrific. And, and, and yet the, the problem is always framed and you must choose. And in the real world, it is never like that. Uh, in the real world, there are always lots of alternatives and, and the real challenge is to creative thinking out of the impasse in which we find ourselves. And see, the, the creation of all these uh, Nightingale hospitals and, the, and these um, additional resources is a classic example of a way out of a, an impasse which looks terrible. Um, and in the real world, in my experience, and virtually every case, it's possible to find creative solutions which get you out of this binary um, decision-making. And uh, so real-world ethics is very different from trolley problems. And I, I, I think it isn't a helpful way of uh, assessing them. Let, let's, let's talk about the real world. Let's talk about real-world alternatives. And let's try and find creative ways out of the impasses that we sometimes find ourselves in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, you can find lots more to read, listen and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the Bible to artificial intelligence, all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>